What time do I have? We good to go? Yes. Thank you for being here this afternoon. I am a researcher in plasma physics and spacecraft propulsion, and I had to ask myself, why am I giving a talk on public policy? But then I've heard it said that uh, when it comes to spaceflight, perhaps the most important orbit is perhaps the 495 that circles the belt to Washington, D.C. So perhaps it is appropriate that a researcher on spacecraft propulsion look into space policy as well. Now, before I go too far into looking at our space policy, I do want to point out that even though the non-civilian aspect of a space policy, namely that of the Air Force and uh, NSA and NRO, is significant, I'm going to limit my remarks to only our civilian space program. And even though, as was pointed out, several nations have a civilian space program, I'm going to limit my remarks primarily to the U.S. civilian space program. Now, throughout the history of the U.S. civilian space program, there have been spirited debates on various issues in the space program. If I were to summarize the various debates in the 50-so years of the space program, they can be limited to three types of questions. First are the questions of how. How are we to accomplish certain objectives in our space program? Second are perhaps, perhaps the questions of what are we going to do with our space program? And perhaps the most fundamental of the question is, what do we have a space program at all? So these three questions of how, what, and why are the questions that I hope to look at today. Now, before we get too far into this, it helps to put the space program in perspective. To put the space program in perspective, I'm going to look at three separate areas, why people are passionate about the space program. First is the economic impact of the space program. Second is the local and national political impact of the space program. And third is the impact of the space program on international relations. So let's first look at the impact of the space program on the economy. The U.S. Civilian Space Program, NASA's budget, inflation-adjusted numbers, have hovered around $18 billion for the last several years. Now, $18 billion is a lot of money, but let's see how this number compares in respect to other areas of our economy. Now, it's about half a percent of the federal budget of $3.5 trillion, but let's see how this number looks compared to other aspects of our economy. We as a nation spend about $18 billion a year on video games. We as a nation spend about $20 billion a year on movies. About $25 billion a year on cruise lines. About $30 billion a year on music. $45 billion a year on recreational fishing. And here's the zinger. $200 billion a year on beer. So, even though NASA's budget is pittance compared to our national beer budget, it is a significant amount. $18 billion, is a, it is a significant amount. And if you look at the history of NASA over the last 50 years, over half a trillion dollars has been spent on our civilian space program. So it is appropriate to examine our space policy carefully. Furthermore, if you look at the secondary impact of our space activities in the economy, they come down to about $139 billion. So because of all the satellites, imaging, and communication satellites that we have, they have a $139 billion impact on the economy. So for these reasons and more, it is appropriate to be taking a closer look at our space policy. So 
economic impact is one reason why people are passionate about space policy. Another reason why people are passionate about space policy is its impact on local and national politics. If you go to the NASA website, you'll find out that its centers and facilities are spread across 11 states, plus, of course, the headquarters right here in Washington, DC. So you've got a lot of representatives to the House and Senate from these 11 states who have a vested interest in protecting the well-paying jobs that NASA provides in their constituencies. This is by design. And in these economic times, it is appropriate that there are these concerns of protecting the jobs in these 11 states that come because of the space program. So there is a significant impact of NASA's activities on local and national politics. And this is especially pertinent when you have key states like Florida, which have tens of thousands of federal jobs, well-paying federal jobs, and that is going to have an impact on the national politics. So that's the reason number two why people care about space policy. It's the impact on local and national politics. And now I want to go into the third point, which is international relations. Now, I'd be leery of overstating the impact of NASA on international relations. However, we have ample evidence that the reverse is true. Our international relations concern do impact our civilian space program. We know that during the Apollo program, that the Cold War relationships between the US and the USSR was of, the prim of primary importance in shaping our space policy. It was uh, well known within the NASA circles, apparently, that JFK was apparently told James Webb that he wasn't that interested in space per se. Now, that seems shocking to all of us space lovers who of all the great things that were accomplished because of JFK's great speech. But the fact of the matter is, this was a tool to shape international relations. But even after the Apollo program, even after the Apollo program, for several years, the relationships between the US and the USSR shaped our space policy. Now, even today, the internationalization of the space station in 1993 was a decision that was influenced by international relations. To this day, one could argue that of the 16 other partners that we have in the International Space Station, this does have some diplomatic influence in the relationships with those 16 nations. Now, international relations also plays out in other areas of space policy, such as space weaponization. The policies that we have in terms of having weapons in space are driven by concerns of international relations. By the way, this is not just about weapons. In terms of using space nuclear power for more peaceful purposes, such as propelling spacecraft or generating onboard electricity on spacecraft, these decisions, our policies on those matters, are driven significantly by our concerns in international relations. So we have to include concerns in international relations, on local and national politics, and on the economy when we look at the scope of why are people passionate about space policy. So given those contexts, of the reasons why people would care, it is perhaps not surprising that people have some strong opinions about what NASA does. <laughs> so, with all those debates about what NASA does, as I said, I'd like to bring this debate down to three basic questions. 
how NASA accomplishes its missions, what NASA does, and the most fundamental question of all, why we have a space program in the first place. I'd like to look at those questions instead of looking at the policy recommendations themselves on these various matters. The thesis of my talk is that it is perhaps helpful to go a layer beneath simply the policy recommendations, but rather look at the worldviews that give rise to those differing policy recommendations. So that is what I'm going to try to do today. First thing I would like to look at is the impact of one's metaphysics on our views on space policy. Now, metaphysics, though at least the way I will use the term over here, is our deep-rooted philosophical understanding of what we believe to be the nature of reality, what we believe reality consists of. This could include our views about nature of God, nature of humanity, nature of the world. What we believe about the nature of reality does influence our views, our, mo our motivations, our passionate views on the space program. For starters, I'm going to look at metaphysical views, a range of metaphysical views on a spectrum which philosophers, metaphysics philosophers would categorize a spectrum of physicalists and dualists. Someone on the physicalist end of the spectrum would hold strongly to the view that only physical entities are real. Only things that you can measure, only physical entities are real. However, we can say that someone on the dualist end of the spectrum would perhaps disagree with that view and say that there is a lot more to reality than things that are merely physical. So one way philosophers categorize metaphysical views is on this physicalist-dualist spectrum. By the way, philosophers also look at metaphysical views on different spectrums. But for now, let's look at the physicalist-dualist spectrum as the way philosophers look at metaphysics. I do want to point out that Christians who are scientists, even if they're Christians, quite often tend to have a metaphysical view, tend to operate with a metaphysical view that is a lot closer to the physicalist end of the spectrum than to the dualist end of the spectrum. By nature, we are empiricists. We like data, we like things that we can measure, and our thinking is driven much more so by the physicalist metaphysical spectrum, more so than by the dualist metaphysical end of the spectrum. Now, I do want to point out that people on either end of the spectrum could be passionate about their support of, of the space program. Some of you may remember that in the late 80s, after the Challenger accident, the US Space Foundation ran a series of ads on TV where they would pair up people who are ideological opponents, for instance, Barry Goldwater and Jesse Jackson, showing up together on TV and sort of, we disagree on this, we disagree on this, but we agree on one thing, the space program. So you'd have these 21 pairs of ideological opponents appearing on TV to express their support for the space program. And that was great. That's a great example of this across-the-board appeal of the space program. However, had the conversation moved away from the what question, namely, we've got to have a space program, to how should we do this in space, or why do we support this, we would have find some sharp disagreements based on where one is on this physicalist, dualist end of the spectrum. This is actually very evident when you talk about the role of humans in the space program. 
Along with these appeals, as was uh, pointed out in the earlier talk, a lot of the appeals to this manifest human destiny or spirit of exploration does not seem to resonate well with people in a certain end of the metaphysical spectrum. Some of you may remember, I think any casual observer of the space program probably remembers this incident from Apollo 8, December 24th night, Christmas Eve, 1968, the crew of Apollo 8 going around the moon. They come around and they see there's a very tense moment where they're not quite sure if the engines fired at the right set moment or not, whether they're going to crash into the moon or escape into space and die in a cold death in space or not. The crew comes around the far point of the moon, and Jim Lowell and his crew, when they see Earth appearing on the horizon, they, in an unplanned moment, read from the opening verses of Genesis. If you watch the recording from the flight control room in Johnson Space Center, you find that there is not a single dry eye. Everyone was just sobbing in there. And millions of people watching that have sobbed, including me. There is something about that that is not physical. In fact, if you, remember, if you notice the transmission of that, Here's Jim Lowell talking about what he sees, the data from the moon. Uh, it kind of looks like uh, blue cheese. So not a very useful scientific information. But the point is, it is not about the scientific information. It is not about the empirical data. There was some value that came from that moment that was not physical. Such appeals to this non-empirical, non-physical motivation for the space program have been existent throughout the history of the space program, and you heard about some of them. I'm going to show you a quote that you just saw from, the, from President Bush in 2004. It talks about this desire that is written in the human heart. And uh, shortly thereafter, Michael Griffin, NASA administrator, issued the statement. This is in an interview with National Geographic. But watch what he cites as the motivation for the space program. He says, it will do a lot for science. Many of you heard Dr. Wiseman's talk earlier, uh, earlier this afternoon, where she talked about using the humans in space shuttle missions to go repair Hubble and other scientific instruments so that we can do science. So using human spaceflight as a means to do science, he said, Griffin says, yeah, it will do that. But that's not the point. That's a, oh, by the way. The drive to extend our reach, the human destiny, is reason enough to go. Notice that he is intentionally shying away from the physicalist, empiricist motivations for the space program. Now, the question is, this is does this appeal to everybody? No, it doesn't. There are a lot of people for whom such appeals to a spirit of exploration simply do not resonate. I want to uh, quote something from... Uh, a recent forum on human spaceflight held at MIT last year. MIT is a space policy group which is very influential, and uh, this is from the forum that they held on human spaceflight last year. Several prominent figures in that, uh, in that group, David Mendel is the director of the space policy program. Here's a quote from him. See, he dismisses this need for human spirit of exploration, he says. We actually reject this idea that exploration is written in our DNA. We don't find that to be useful or empirically supportable conclusion. What's the assumption here? 
The assumption here is that if there is any such thing as spirit of exploration, it must be coded in the DNA. This is at the heart of the physicalist worldview, physicalist metaphysics, namely, only things that are real are things that are physically, empirically quantifiable. So people in these two ends of the metaphysical spectrum do have a hard time seeing each other's points. Now, so that is one way the differences in the physicalist, dualist, metaphysical worldview impact the space policy. There's another way philosophers categorize metaphysical views, and that is along a spectrum of constrained and unconstrained worldviews. Someone in a constrained end of the spectrum, well, let me uh, take a step back, someone in an unconstrained end of the spectrum has an unbridled optimism in the ability of humanity to exalt itself and improve itself and enhance itself. It actually has philosophical and theological, Christian theological basis, for instance, in Thomas Aquinas' writings. Let me quote from Aquinas. He talks about what's humanly possible, how humanity can enhance itself. Here's what he says. Courage. If you look at uh, Aquinas' systematic, systematic Theology, this is 26-volume Systematic Theology, his magnum opus that Aquinas wrote in the 1200s, he talks about four cardinal virtues of humanity. And his fourth cardinal virtue is courage. He talks about how courage, a courageous person will display magnificence, a sense of nobility with respect to the importance of his endeavors. The courageous person will seek and attain these actions with a greatness of purpose. There's something about humans exhibiting courage in their actions that reveals something about their constituency. Again, he's making a metaphysical allusion to what is human, human nature. So someone in an unconstrained end of the spectrum has this unbridled optimism in humanity, what humanity can achieve, and what it can display about its true nature. In contrast, someone on an unconstrained end of the spectrum has a much more cautious view of human nature. Someone on the unconstrained uh, end of the spectrum would say, as long as we have known, humans have had a desire to conquer, to face danger and overcome danger, and this aspect of humanity has typically played itself in the form of conquest over other human beings, wars, and taking over territory. This is something that's inherently in the human nature. This is inevitable that humans will behave so, and instead of letting this play out in the form of wars and conquests over fellow human beings, perhaps an activity like space exploration is a much, much more constructive place to vent this aspect of human, human nature. So in this case, what you're saying is, instead of going and conquering other human beings, let's go and conquer nature. So this is a much more constrained way of looking at human, human nature. So one way or another, you do need to have human presence in play in space to have each of these things play out. This is not something that can be merely accomplished by having scientific instruments or robots in space because both of these things have to do with metaphysical views of human nature, either it is having the courage or showing magnificence to exalt itself. Now, by the way, this 
constraint, unconstrained nature of metaphysical view of human nature plays out in many other areas. We talked about space weaponization and uh, proliferation treaties in space flight. All these things can be traced back to this, but I do want to move on. I do want to po point to one other question that was raised earlier, and that is about why should we have a space program in this world where there is much suffering? We live in a world where there are three billion people that live under, under $2 a day. Every day, 40,000 children die of malnutrition. 40,000 children a day die of malnutrition. That is the world that we live in. Where is our Christian responsibility in spending $18 billion a year on spaceflight? I do want to answer that question by looking at how do we choose to live our life in a reactive way or in a proactive way? In the larger biblical narrative of creation, fall, and redemption, we acknowledge that we live in a world that is filled with disease and death and suffering. However, even in this world, we choose to pursue many things, art and literature and music, we talked about how much of money we spend on those things. We certainly value those things as humanity because we believe that these endeavors give us some insight into the human condition. Along those lines, one could argue that these travails of a fallen human nature of disease and death and lawlessness, which is why most of the professions that we have, doctors and lawyers and cops and military, most of these things are designed to ward off the effects of the fall. But as beings created in the image of God, we do have to acknowledge that there is a room to pursue things that in an eschatological sense give us a greater understanding of the goodness of God's creation in uh, creating this world. So those are some of the ways in which our metaphysical views play into our motivation for why and what we do in the space program. While those metaphysical views impact the why and what we do in space, ideology affects what the question of how we implement our objectives in the space program. By ideology, I simply mean the tools and the instruments that we use to accomplish our objectives. That is significantly influenced by our worldview, uh, by our metaphysics as well. If you get a chance, I would uh, recommend Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions, when he talks about the ideological origins of political struggles. Again, this traces back ideological conflicts to underlying metaphysical differences. But even here, I do want to point out that if you look at the current debate on our national space policy, if you look at the differences in the recommendation between the NASA space policy, the White House space policy, and the Senate version of the space policy, and the House version of the space policy, you'd find that there are significant differences. What I would encourage is to, instead of merely evaluating this proposal, take a step back and look at what the ideological bases of these different proposals are. You can look at this as a four-state spectrum of what is the role of the state in accomplishing these objectives. At one end of the spectrum, you could have the state, NASA or the US government, administering and carrying out its own program. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you can have slightly further down the spectrum, you could have the state in charge of the program, but it uses the private sector to accomplish some of its program. Or slightly further down the line, you could have the state taking a slightly more detached role, but 
enabling and encouraging the private sector to do most of the activities. Or even further down the line, the state is reducing its, imp imp its influence in the program, and it merely regulates the private sector to do whatever it wants to do. Or all the way down the spectrum, the state gives unfettered access to the private sector. All of these things actually have an metaphysical underpinnings as well. Someone with an unconstrained view of human nature, either in the nature of the individual or an unconstrained optimism in the nature of human authority, would go with either end of the spectrum because individual humans are good, human authority is good, we can have complete control on one side or another, that's okay. But someone with a more constrained view of the human nature will find both of these things to be objectionable. They would see problems with too much of individual freedom, and they would also see too much of problem with government control. So someone with a constrained metaphysical view would try to stay within the two ends of the spectrum. So this also plays out in terms of what policy instruments that people would recommend in terms of accomplishing the goals in the space program. We typically think in terms of giving simply transferring money, namely from taxes, from the revenue, to simply give money from the federal government to an organization like NASA to accomplish our objectives in space. Perhaps it can also be looked at in terms of a tool to promote the state providing and encouraging private parties to accomplish the objectives, or the state merely protecting private endeavors by appropriate laws and patent laws and uh, uh, guarantees for uh, the economy, or the state can take a much more detached role, and all it does is it protects the, someone's free swinging hand from hitting someone else's nose, and having a much more detached view of what should be and should not be allowed in the space program. Now, these are different ways once metaphysical views in turn shape our ideology, and as a combination of the metaphysical views and the ideological views, these things can have a significant impact of why, what, and how something must be done in our space program. Thank you for participating with me in an introductory exploration of what are the worldviews that give rise to differing space policies. My hope in this thing is for us to go beyond merely debating competing policy proposals to look at the underlying worldviews that give rise to these differing policy proposals and thereby hopefully we can make some progress in, nego in policy negotiations. So, thank you for joining me. So we do have about five minutes for questions. Hi. Hi. Yes. The question was, uh, with the constraint and the unconstrained in the spectrum, are there some objectives that are better suited for one than the other? Uh, in terms of the what question, the constraint and the unconstrained may actually have a lot of agreement. But the physicalist and the dualist will probably have significant disagreements on the, on the what question. But with the constraint and the unconstrained, the primary disagreement will be on the why question. Why do this at all in the first place? And that's where the bi biggest disagreements will come in with the constrained versus unconstrained metaphysical views. Other questions? 
Yeah, okay, I got a question over here. There was a lot of discussion amongst um, the, the astrophysicists and space scientists that I work with when NASA a few years ago was 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 coming up with this new vision under the Bush administration for, for space exploration about the, the, the preeminence of science in priority. And there was a lot of discussion that those uh, motivations for space exploration can in fact change over time, that just because the nation had one priority back in the Apollo era doesn't mean that that has to be the same priority for space exploration or the same motivation now. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, maybe science is more important now than mm -hmm. it was back then, or, do you, mm -hmm. or, or vice versa. I mean, mm -hmm. do you have any, do you agree that motivations for space exploration can in fact change? Thank you. The question was about how do these uh, uh, different conflicting interests shape in differing policies, and do these, uh, do these answers change with time? And I certainly uh, that is certainly my view, that how with these complete con conflicting worldviews giving rise to conflicting policies and what we end up doing, I think that decision-making process does, and I believe should, change with time. I don't believe one should be completely eliminated at the, at the expense of the other, but the relative weight that we give to various aspects of our, uh, of our space program, I do think it's very appropriate that they change as the conditions that we live in change from one generation to another, and uh, especially with uh, something such as uh, when there is a significant external threat and if there is uh, a greater motivation to inspire the population, perhaps, our choices may be different at that time. When we are under dire economic constraints, our choices may be different at that time. Depending upon the uh, greater socioeconomic factors, I absolutely think that it's very appropriate that our evaluation of these competing uh, worldviews should take on different forms.